Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my. It's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others. Here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker. And guess what, everybody? PK is back tonight. Welcome, PK. So glad you're feeling better. Well, I am, too. And I'm going to hold on and hope hope my phone lasts for the call. But we're working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good to have you back. So do tell. We've got another yeah, we miss you so much. Can't wait for our guest and... tonight. He oh is my gosh. fabulous. I cannot yes. wait to hear him. I know, me too. It, it, this is, as we were just discussing off the air, this is going to be real disclosure, everybody. I know we've all been disgusted and fed up with the Pentagon so-called report, but we are happy to actually hear the truth for change. And that's what we've got tonight with our guest. So, before we bring him on, tell us about what's going on, the numbers. Give us some direction with this. It feels like every which way well, we turn, there's madness. Well, things are crazy because it's a three-universal month, which means it's all about communication, creativity, feelings of scatteredness, feeling unsure about which direction to go first, and we're in a five-year. Threes and fives are very lucky, though, so do keep that in mind as you're trying to put things together but feeling that this is going to give us some great opportunities to deal with some things that make it very important for us to work off of. Now, the best part about this is you can shine and bring brightness into the life of others through changes that are not only creative, but are going to give you opportunities to share ideas with others, which is what we're going to get from our guest tonight for sure. But in terms of this, it's a time of a gift. Be optimistic. And feel the ability to share your dreams and to express the things that you'd like to. Anything to do with creativity or the arts or whatever, they're going to be great. So take a chance on doing anything to do with the arts. You're going to learn. You're going to teach. You're going to gather your abilities together. And it's going to make people feel great. The one thing, though, although this is the three months, the creativity and the communications are fabulous. Don't use it to gossip because that way you'll put a negative spin on everything that's going on. Because it's a great time to be social, being optimistic. Don't be pessimistic. Let your creative imagination, let it add some colors and some excitement to what you've got going on. And the most important thing is not everyone is going to be able to carry out on their dreams for others. But if you take one step at a time, you'll be surprised at the lovely picture you're going to be able to put together. So, Think in terms of this. Hang on to your coattails, excel, go for it, make it the best of time. And that's what we've got going. Two numbers that are lucky, the month and the year, let's make it all 
been in a very positive, very positive way. Sounds excellent. Yeah, I mean, this sounds very positive. And and so this whole month, I'm hoping, will be a good one for everybody. But I have talked to people who are saying that, you know, they're having a hard time keeping up. It just feels like everything is moving super fast and very difficult to Think in terms that the five year is all about speed. Remember, we always talk about oh. if you're driving too fast, you're going to end up with a ticket. The cop's going to be waiting in the corner. Well, the five yeah. year, everything is about speed, and the three is all about communications and creativity. Put the two of them together. Wow, what can you put out of this blender? Hmm? Yeah. Wow. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's all very positive for a change. So that's good. We're looking forward to positive, definitely. Oh, so, God, we all need it. <laughs> oh, really? So I, um, I, I just, I'm so excited about our guest, and I know you are too, because we've been uh, upset a bit, not surprised, Pentagon report or lack thereof of information. Oh, you mean the lack valuable. thereof is right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But our guest tonight, he is going to bring in the real stuff. So. He is a four-decade U.S. government senior scientist turned paranormal researcher and author. Raymond Shamansky takes us inside the top-secret holy grail of ufology. Ufology, I did say that right. Right, Patterson Air Force Base. And mm-hmm. we're going to look at alien visitation possibilities that have not previously been explored. And, again, his interest in extraterrestrials and their connection to Wright-Pat was ignited during his first week of government employment by a mentor who eventually earned promotion to the exclusive ranks of the senior executive service. So this intriguing backstory and many revelatory ventures are presented in his book, and he has investigated his way through the UFO ET phenomena, transforming from a curious, skeptical researcher to a firm believer in the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Now, he's an award-winning author and researcher, and he has two books, Alien Shades of Grace, cute title, and mm-hmm. the most recent one, Swamp Gas, My Ass. So we need... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I great book. <laughs> I know. What a great title. It's so perfect, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Oh, definitely. So, Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're excited. Well, it's our pleasure. We're so glad to have the real deal here with us tonight. So this all started for you back when you were, what, 19 years old? Yeah, just about. It was uh, 1973, and I was one of four cooperative education students that came down from, like, came down from the University of Detroit we were all electrical engineers. And um, during uh, the office I was assigned to had a mid-level, he was a, um, an engineering type, and uh, he was probably a GS-11 at that time. And, and as you pointed out to the audience, he became an um, equivalent of a general that is a member of the senior executive service. So... Um, he kind of spawned my interest because he said, hey, I'm going to take you to, through this hangar from one building to the next, and I'll take you to where the, the coffee shop is, you know, the greasy spoon. 
And he said, I'll get you a candy bar, kind of like a welcoming gift. So um, we step out of Building 22 into this hangar, which was empty at the time and very, very dark. And uh, we go down this short little ramp, entry ramp, and he turns to me and says, um, have you heard about our aliens? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And, you know, Did you I was think a, he was pulling your leg or what? Well, you know, um, Al was a really, really sharp guy, very entertaining, um, very up with it. And, you know, that's my first week, and I'm literally, I'm frightened out of my mind. I've never been really <laughs> away from home for any time, and I'm placed at this base. Now, imagine, I'll give you some perspective. Um, the base is over 8,000 acres, and it, it has over 600 buildings. And, you know, you drive onto the property and you've got to go through a guard at the gate and it's kind of, you know, very impressive, very intimidating. So I was just all ears. I wasn't passing any judgment at that point. So you just so, took it all in as it was happening. I, that's correct. I took it all in. We, we were walking, you know, and he told me, well, there was this crash out West and they brought the, their machine and their occupants here for a test evaluation and, possible exploitation and you know i said well where do they keep these things and he said well they keep them in the tunnels so that was yet another revelation and i said we we have tunnels he said oh yeah we we have tunnels and i said well can we go see these these you know occupants in the tunnels and he goes well no i'm afraid not well you know of course i had to ask and i said well why not he says well it's a secret so much, yeah, okay. much to my surprise. Well, if it's a secret, Al, how do you know about it? And, you know, it turns out that as I was digging, you know, the next days and weeks and months, I talked to, uh, you know, a guy, Doug in accounting, who was a friend he introduced me to, and another guy and another guy. And, you know, any casual chance I got, I'd ask him about this alien thing that, that Al told me about. And pretty much, you know, I think people were clued into the fact that the Roswell crash wreckage was brought to Wright-Patterson because the the um, Project Blue Book had been there for 20-some years before my arrival. It, it was only closed up in 1969. So this was only like four years after Blue Book closed up and all its publicity and all that good stuff. So everyone was pretty clued in that Wright-Pat had the connection to uh, alien technology. And, and most everybody told me, yeah, what he tells you is, is pretty accurate. And, well, we don't know the gory details, but we're pretty sure it came here. Wow. And so there's a lot of revelations here about the tunnels underneath. Now, we've heard about tunnels before. We've heard that there are tunnels that connect a lot of different installations, government installations. And we've heard that there's a lot of alien activity um, or activity of experimentation with aliens underneath the ground and in these in these areas that have all these tunnels. So, were you ever able to see any aliens there? Oh, abs- absolutely not. And you know the thing about the, the tunnels, many of them just connected one building to another. You know, underneath 
uh, simply as a pedestrian walkway. Now, I can tell you that some of those pedestrian walkway walls were lined with huge vault doors. You know, it's not like you have to walk a mile through guards and get to the end of a tunnel and then find a vault door. Uh, they were pretty prevalent in, you know, the underground facility. So it, with Wright-Patterson having, you know, upwards of 15,000 civilians and maybe another 15,000 military assigned to it, it should come as no surprise that there are a lot of vaults for doing classified work down in tunnels, you know, and these aren't like dirt tunnels. This is just, you know, like underneath mall, you know, go to Washington, D.C. And, and get in the malls there. So it should come as no surprise. Now, if there were aliens in there, they certainly would be well protected. Uh, even if they were behind the doors, there might be another door behind there and another door behind there. So nobody is really going to see these things unless they were meant to. Wow. So you were not exactly in the loop with that. You you heard about it, but you were not included in that. That's very, very sad. <laughs> no, absolutely. For us, it's sad. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad I didn't have to sit on that secret for 40 years. Yeah. That oh, horrible. my goodness. That would have been horrible. Yeah. Absolutely. So <laughs> tell us what you did learn about this, because, you know, we've been crabbing about this Pentagon report for a while now. And what are your thoughts on this? I mean, they're keeping all of this hidden still. What's the deal? Why? That's, that's really Why good. That's, that? a, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, I um, occasionally will sit around and you know, put notes in a notebook just to kind of nosh around. Well, I got a, a presentation coming up and there's something else I want to add and I'll be, you know, sketching out a PowerPoint slide or two. And so I started to think about, that topic and the report. So here is just, you know, my humble opinion on that. On the good side, after, say, 75 years, it's a nice round number, 75 years of outright lying and obfuscation, they have finally come forward and said, yeah, there's stuff out there that we don't know what it is. And they were very careful to statement in terms of the 144 military sightings that and reports that they've received in the last whatever the span it was, three years, four years, five years. I, I didn't memorize the report, but they only wanted to address a very short period of time. So for those of us, yourself included, who have been studying this for decades, uh, you can see how very carefully this thing was crafted. But in the end, the admission is a quantum leap forward. No one should mistake what they came out with as a cover-up. It is... It is literally, it is so beautifully crafted that this admission should be on every television station and every radio station 24-7 the next month. But the statement was so carefully crafted that it lent this air of calm to it. It said, we've got these great sightings 
you know, uh, from really reputable people because there are highly trained military, and we're on top of it. And it's if you look at that, it's exactly, but worded differently from what happened 75 years ago with the Roswell incident. So, yeah, situation right. normal. Situation normal, but they finally made the admission that there's stuff up there that they need to address and that they're going to look into it. But it's a quantum leap. So that's that's really the good part. And then the bad part is um, there is still a lot of deception in what they wrote. For example, they're ignoring the other 100,000 reports that happened over the last 75 years. And I think that is the disingenuous part that undermines their entire admission. But again, that was part, I think, of the process that they wanted so that people wouldn't start jumping off bridges and buildings. Do you really think that that's their worry or is it their worry that they are going to lose control of this? Well, because, you know, people you know, aren't treating it like it's some big, scary monster thing. They're just saying, oh, well, you know, the government's at it again, giving us the BS story. They're not going to tell the truth. And it's well, what, I think the latest statistic was 65% of all Americans believe UFOs are real and they're from other planets. So, you know, it's like, what's, What's the real reason behind that? I think people have long gotten over hysteria about this from they, War of the Worlds. Well, they they did tell the truth. They told the truth and they said, we don't know what it is. We've got very reliable reports and we need to seriously consider uh, researching this. When you look at the problem they have, you, you notice it wasn't the Air Force that released the videos because it's an Air Force problem to handle. The, the Navy is going to encounter it because they have airplanes, but the Navy put it out there because, guess what, not our problem. It's all going to come back to the Air Force again because their job is to keep the skies free and clear of enemies, foreign and domestic. So they had to bound the problem, and if they brought all the other history back into it, it's going to raise the cries of, you have a job, you need to do it, but the government realizes that this is a job that nobody can do. And so they have to bound the problem, and they did do that magnificently. Now, what if I told you, Patricia, that you are now a brain surgeon and that tomorrow you've got to perform a successful lobotomy on a patient? I've just given you a job that I know you can't do. Do you really look forward to waking up in the morning and trying to do that job? Well, not really. Uh, <laughs> that would not be high on my list of things to do that would bring me great joy. However, don't they know what this is for the most part? Don't they know? Haven't they identified races of extraterrestrials that have been visiting the Earth for thousands of years? You know, I don't know, but... That brings me to, uh, if I can just cut it in here, and then we can bounce around it. In my latest book, 
Swamp Gas My Ass. It's the story of two men who eventually elevated themselves, one to a full bird colonel. That means he wears the eagle on, on his shoulders. And the other one made it to a lieutenant colonel and, and maybe just by <clears throat> racial prejudice that was in the system at the time, he did not make a bird colonel. Um, but these are two guys who they intercepted the famous 1966 Michigan swamp gas UFO. And I had the great pleasure of interviewing Colonel Gary K. Carroll, who is the remaining person in that uh, two-person intercept mission, whom I had the great pleasure of interviewing for over 30 hours and many off-the-record discussions, I might add. And I bring him up at this point because at the time, he had the world's greatest fighter interceptor, the F-106 Delta Dart, with the world's best radar system and infrared system. And he intercepted this thing on multiple occasions. By intercept meaning he got close enough to see it visually, and he got returns on his radar that showed up on his screen that proved that what he was seeing visually was a solid object. And in the many hours that I had a chance to quiz him on this, from every possible angle, from 360 degrees, he always expressed to me his amazement that even though he was up there for 90 minutes and getting multiple intercepts and, and again, chasing it and watching it and doing the readouts and then looking at those readouts again since they were recorded during the debriefing, how little they knew about what they had intercepted. And I think that a, there, are, there may be crashed crafts that they are reverse engineering. They may have aliens. And, yes, all of that stuff they should eventually tell us about. But my point is, even given today's technology, which I have discussed with Colonel Carroll because we have discussed those Navy films that got released, he is still amazed at how little today's pilots could divine from those intercepts and their technology, even though it's 55 years of advanced technology over what he used. My point is, there is so much that we don't know and they don't know. And if they don't know, they can't tell us. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I don't think they know everything. And there's been enough guests on this show that have said that they don't know everything. But they do know some things. And there's certainly enough stories going around about Eisenhower meeting with them. In fact, we had Paul Blake Smith on who wrote a great book called President Eisenhower's Close Encounters that he did meet with beings that were not from this world. So there's a lot of evidence he put together to build a case for that which again speaks to them really knowing about the fact that there are extraterrestrials. It just sounds to me like they, they have been so reluctant to come out with that statement. Um, and I just, I think that there is a reason why. I think there's a big reason why. 
Because if they've known it all this time, they've been engaged with them, not all the races, but some of the races, I think people would be furious with them that all of this that they've been doing behind our backs has been kept from us. And why? Because they're going to stand behind because you would all get hysterical. You know, that's not a a good reason. And especially now, it's not a good reason to keep the truth from us. I mean, what we have heard, Ray, is more on the lines of this also alludes to the advanced technology that would help people on this planet and the planet, and they don't want us to know anything about it, which is even worse. Well, well, let's look at it from a nationalistic point of view. You have to admit that there are many countries that we are friends with and many countries not so much. We also uh, have to understand that a lot of countries misbehave. We, that's why we've gone to world wars before and that sort of thing. So just from a purely nationalistic standpoint, let's say that we'll speculate that we are reverse engineering something that we've recovered and that slowly but surely uh, much of that has actually been leaked uh, into um, civilian life. For example, if you look at Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, he says, we've reverse engineered some, some of the things. Right? And he said, you know, we've got uh, microcircuitry, we have uh, fiber optics, we have uh, medical things. And those are just the fundamental technologies that we can exploit and build bigger and better things around. And if you look at it, what has it done for our country? Well, it has kept us strong. It, it has kept us a, um, I would say, a very God-blessed country to live in. Uh, many countries are in abject poverty. Uh, you look at their standard of living. We have a wonderful standard of living here uh, for, for, you know, across the board. And it is in our best interest, and this is just Ray's personal opinion, I think it is in our best interest for the United States of America not to just carte blanche, throw everything out there that we know and share it with everybody because if we can use it for our advantage first and keep us economically strong, militarily strong, or whatever strengths we need, ecologically strong, then I think we should do it. And, yes, it's a little bit selfish. But I don't see countries coming forward and giving us money. Do you? Now, it's always, oh, you know, $50 billion for this guy and $50 billion for that guy and $50 oh, billion. Oh, please, don't get us started on that one. Yeah, well, uh, we're I not in favor I, of I that. Want, yeah, I don't want to get you started on that. But what I'm saying is, is that I believe that we have recovered this technology. I believe that we have been reverse engineering it and slowly uh, utilizing it uh, in creating uh, newer technologies. And I think that we should continue, unless there is some cataclysmic thing that we need to prevent, I think the rate at which it is coming out, I'm happy with it. I, I think too much technology too fast is a bad thing. I think keeping us economically and militarily strong is a good thing. And so if we have to lie 
about whether or not we're reverse engineering alien technology, you know what? That's just one of the things that I am willing to accept. Yeah, I, again, I think PK and I are on the same page with you on that. We don't want this, if we have this technology, which I believe we do, to get into wrong hands and be used against us. So no quarrel with that. However, to come out and say, you know, we don't know what they are is such a half-truth. They do know what some of these are and who some of these are that are piloting these crafts. But the other thing that concerns us is it is possibly a setup to scare people when people don't need to be scared, um, to scare people into thinking this could turn into alien invasion, you know, that these our skies are being invaded. And it just, it could turn really bad, really fast. And, but the aliens themselves, if they ever wanted to do something horrible to us, they probably would have done it by now. And so it just seems like, again, there's a lot of suspicion around the government and how they're using this, the rebranding of UFOs to UAPs, and now this kind of nothing burger of a report, but alluding mm-hmm. to certain things. So it's like we sit here and go, okay, come on already. We've all lost faith in our institutions. And this is just further proof of that. So, again, there's just a, there's a lot going on here behind the scenes. And even you mentioned the tunnels. We've heard about the tunnels. Um, right. The tunnels underneath the observatory that, you know, there was a big to-do with last year. Uh, there's there's just so much that's being kept from us. And walking. If, if you're walk. saying that this is all, you know, to keep us safe, then, again, I, I think that's exactly what the narrative is that they're building. This is to keep you all little children safe. Is it? Really? Or is it to keep them safe, you know, in terms of their positions of power? and how they're directing this. I don't know the answer, because I'm not on the inside of this. But there's a lot more questions. Go ahead. In in the second book of the trilogy, which was called Victoria's Secret Truth, uh, I detail the experiences of Victoria, which is really her first name. And she is a person who has had contact of the seventh kind in that she firmly believes that she is a participant in an alien hybridization program. And that has been borne out in four lengthy regressions that she had with three world-class hypnotic therapist, which includes Dr. Leo Sprinkle, Yvonne Smith, and Barbara Lamb. And so if you consider what she said is true, and um, I have many, many other stories from women who have told me about their experiences that are very similar to Victoria's. And I can tell you that Victoria's handled it extremely well. She's super intelligent, um, you know, her academic background, her business background, her professional background bears that out. Uh, and 
she has taken it as just fate, I, I guess. Uh, maybe she she claims that maybe perhaps she had made some kind of a pre-birth arrangement and all that, you know, crazy stuff. But many of the women that have told me about their similar experiences have been terrified their entire lives. It has broken up their marriages. I can't tell you how many times, you know, and, and, and I'm talking at least a dozen people have told me their story, and it's so similar. And many of them have gotten divorced, of course, over this. Their children have become experiencers. Why the husband has either been left out or is in deep denial, I've never had the opportunity to um, research that. But if the government is aware, and I'm sure they have to be, I can't imagine they're not, Yes, exactly. that, that all of these stories exist that this hybridization program is going on, I'm not sure who in the government would ever want to step forward and go, hey, uh, ladies and gentlemen, while we're talking about, you know, these machines zipping around the sky and, and this part of the investigation, we got this alien hybridization program going on. Now, I, for one, would not want to be the government person who had to step up to the podium to admit to the world that this is going on. <laughs> Yep. I can see that nobody wants to step up and say it's going on except the researchers like you and other people who know about this. We've had them on our show that, yeah, Mm -hmm. this hybridization program has been going on for many, many, many years. The thing is, these people who've had these experiences, there's no upside to sharing this because they don't get any validation from anywhere except maybe other people who've gone through it. So, I mean, there's no pat on the back, thanks for sharing, when they bring this up. Not only that, but the government has harassed a lot of these people. I know for a fact that Betty Andreessen Luca and her husband, Bob Luca, mm-hmm. have been harassed for over 30 years by the government with black helicopters over their house, being drugged in their own home, uh, being followed, having the FBI show up at Bob's place of work when he and Betty decided to go to Florida in the middle of the night, and they lost track of them. I mean, this is what I'm talking about, is the darker side of all of this, what the government and the shadow government have been up to. So that's, I think, one of the reasons they don't want to step up and say what they've really been doing, because it's so hurtful. These people have been through enough. And the woman that you wrote about, I'm sure she had many challenges with this. And Betty and Bob, many challenges with this. And I know Mm -hmm. their faith is strong, and that got them through. But our own government doing this to people who would be very happy to sit down with them and give them all their information. But no, instead of that, they've got to sneak around and and do these things uh, to them behind their backs. I, I just, you know, it's talking out of both sides of their face and having witnessed this and knowing this to be true. It's, it's, it's more than upsetting that our own government's doing that to our own people and then coming out and saying, but, oh, but we don't really know what this is. I only offered that as a reason. Our frustration. That, that I only offered Victoria's story as a reason for why the government would not come forward with 
the entire story because, as you said, much of it is painful, and I don't think the world is ready as a whole to understand that. And I can tell you that the way that some of the people have come forward to me was after the, that book, Victoria's Secret Truth, after it came out and was available, they got a copy of it, they read it, they contacted me. And these are people that I had worked with, in some cases, in a professional capacity for several years. And they came forward and said, I'm so glad that you wrote this book. And one of them said, I thought I was the only one. Can you believe it? They've had these night terrors the entire life. And they did not know that their children were experiencers until one evening at the dinner table, one child said to the other child, are you going to tell mom? And the second child said, "Mm, okay. And mom goes, what? And the children said, we were all in a spaceship together last night. And it was at that point that one of my professional associates found out she wasn't the only one in the family that was now having experiences. But she felt better about it because, believe it or not, she thought she was an isolated case. I mean, it's it's amazing. But yes. so I think when people will read these stories, they realize I'm not alone, and I recommend it, and some of the individuals have gone forward and have gotten uh, counseling and therapy, and, and I'm hoping that it helped them. Yes, absolutely, because it is a very isolating experience for the most part. Um, so it's it's great that your book has enlightened other people to know that they're not alone. So, yeah, I just think it's it's a very difficult conundrum for people that have experiences in that realm. You know, where do you go with it? Who do you talk to? Who do you trust? And I think that a level of paranoia can take over also because you don't know who's after you. <laughs> Is it? Is it the ETs that want you for their hybrid program, or is it the government that wants you for another reason? So these people have really been through the ringer. So your book, I'm sure, has enlightened a lot of experiencers about this and hopefully made them feel a little bit better about it. And Victoria is to be highly uh, recommended and praised for actually going public with her story. It was a, a big step. It actually took me about but 12 it, months to convince her to tell tell the story. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's no big reward to that usually. So, again, that's, that's a great accomplishment that she's trusted you enough to bring her story forward um, so other people could hear about it. And, yeah, there's there's so many tentacles to this UFO rabbit hole. There's so many, I should just say, tunnels to walk through. And, I mean, I'm so curious to find out what's behind those vault doors. That must have been something you thought about a lot. Yeah. um, You know, when Al told me about this, it kind of sparked my interest. And so, you know, as, as an engineer, uh, you're working with other organizations or you're working with in your own organization. And, and the buildings um, that I worked in, uh, for the most part, uh, were they contained a lot of uh, very sensitive uh, things. And so there, there were vault doors literally everywhere. And, and within some of those were, were, you know, what they call skips. And, and those are even 
you know, more highly classified uh, things are going on in there. And you often wondered, but for the most part, we never ask because it's considered impolite. Like, oh, hey, what are you doing? Because the guy would just go, shut the F up. Uh, I can't tell you. And then, <laughs> and, that, that, and then, you know, you won't be able to ask them to play around the golf or something in the league. So you, you've got to be very careful. But there were uh, cases where I knew people who were in the intelligence community, and um, I would ask them certain things within limits because, you know, you become friends with people over the years, and eventually you get a little smattering of what their job title is and that sort of thing. And I, uh, in at least one instance, gave one of these intelligence uh, officers a photograph. Now, it was it was a photograph that might have been, you know, second generation, third generation. But I was just curious about it because the technologies were coming out in Photoshopping and all that stuff. And um, I knew the source. So, and I trusted the source. And the source told me that they had taken the photograph. So I um, gave it to this intelligence source because I knew that he had connections for photo analysts and asked him if he could lean on these guys for a favor and have them look at this, this photo. And when it all was said and done, he came back to me and said, well, they wanted to know how well you trust your source. And I said, very trustworthy. I, I, you know, I got this under really pristine conditions and, you know, my source is, is to be trusted. And they said, well, if you trust your source, then it, it corroborates what they found that um, it looks like a legitimate photograph. And, you know, congratulations. And what so, was it a photograph of? It was a photograph of a dot in the sky that once you blew it up, you could tell that it wasn't an airplane or a helicopter or whatever, and it wasn't a blimp. And uh, it happened to be uh, taken over a, um, a a very spiritual place called Chaco Canyon. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, um, a lot the, of sightings. They, yeah. They, yeah, the individual gave me... Um, uh, through through my friend gave me uh, uh, just a short report, you know, kind of drew stuff uh, on a copy of the the, the uh, image I'd printed for him, and um, you know showed why they thought the the the, um, the the markings of a legitimate photograph. Why you know, and so they told me about it. I don't share that because many people over the years have given me photographs, and I don't want to tell them what I do now to, you know, make me feel more comfortable comfortable with whether it's good or not. So that's a long answer to saying, you know, we talked about things at Right Pat. Uh, we suspected people were working on certain things, but you really never asked. And, um, you know, if they wanted to tell you, fine, uh, but that really didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Now, with uh, people in your uh, area, were they all asked to sign non-disclosure types of agreements that they wouldn't talk about it? Because we've heard oh, that they mostly insist, yeah, on those. Oh, agreements. everybody, yeah. You know, on the, the, the day you come in, you know, when your security clearance comes through, you sign a piece of paper that says you're going to keep your mouth shut. And uh, on the last day, on the very last day, the, just before they take away 
your access, literally, in the last hour of your employment there. And mine lasted 38 years and nine months. They have you sign a very similar form, you know, that says you will keep your mouth shut. So, and that's no secret. Everybody who's held a security clearance for the government will sign that same form as they kick you out the door. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of officers were they, do you think, that they were looking for, that they selected to work with the alien technology or the aliens themselves? Were there certain personalities they were looking for, certain levels of training they were looking for? I don't know. I wasn't involved in that program. But I would expect that, you know, think of the government. They have money. They have your money. They have taxpayer money. They have contracting offices that uh, can hire people and do projects, programs with. Uh, They can hire consultants so they have other vehicles other than, you know, just a straightforward, uh, you know, time and materials contracts. So they can pretty much get who they want to work on certain aspects of a program. So let's go back to 1947. Everybody thinks that we have to have a Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in which we're going to put this crashed disc that the people in Roswell put up on, on the uh, front page, you know, in July of 1947, uh, which right. I believe the – this is perfect. I mean, this is the week, this is the week that Roswell came out uh, 74 years ago. Uh, so this is just perfect. We're having this conversation. So they yeah. said they had this flying disc. They said they had this flying disc, and then now they don't. They got a weather balloon. <clears throat> well, if you read the testimonies that are available, good jobs by all the researchers, you'll find that the biggest piece mentioned is two foot by three foot. There's no even even though the the government said we've recovered a crashed disc, there was no description of the disc in that press release. Mm-hmm. So, so do I need a 200-foot-wide hangar to store crash material in? No, I don't. I literally could put it in a briefcase. And that's probably what happened in 1947. Whoever was in charge of this, and we know the materials went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Why do we know this? Because General Thomas DuBose who was the chief of staff at the 8th Army Air Corps in Fort Worth, signed an affidavit and said that it went to Wright Pat, and I'll tell you why he's important. And Jesse Marcel, who picked the stuff up out of the desert and escorted it back to Roswell and then to Fort Worth, he went public and said it went to Wright Pat. DuBose was chief of staff at that office, and the office I'm talking about is the office through which Major Marcel processed the material through on its way to Wright-Patterson. So the fact that it went to Wright-Patterson is unalienable. (laughs) It's unassailable. It it went to Wright-Pat. And it wouldn't have gone, it it wouldn't have required a hangar. They would have put it in a suitcase or a box. They would have taken it to the materials directorate that in 1947 was already at Wright-Patterson for 30 years. It was founded in 1917. So these were the aerospace material experts of the world. Somebody would have brought it in, maybe pieces in a briefcase, opened it up, and would have said, get your guys in here. Here's the scoop. Here's a bucket of money. 
I want you to take how long you need. Six months, you know, would be a good number. Subject these materials to every test you know, whatever it takes. Hammers, chisels, fire, electron microscopes, whatever you all got. Tell us everything you can tell us about it, the elemental contents of it. We'll be back in six months. They all meet in six months. The money's exchanged, the final payments. These guys sign non-disclosure agreements. The guy takes the report away, of which there's only a single copy. He takes what's left of the materials and says, we were never here. You never did this stuff. You know, this thing never happened. So you don't really need a Hangar 18, but that material most definitely went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 1947. Right. And you're talking about the collapsible material, right, that it would just you'd crumple it up and then it would retain its shape? There's a metal, an unusual metal, right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that makes sense, you know, that it would have gone there, it would have been investigated, and everybody would have been given that directive that it didn't happen. So, But nobody but, knows what happened to that stuff afterwards. Right. It's like, where does it get stored? It makes me think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and <laughs> the Ark is stored away in some old dusty building with other artifacts that are equally important. So, yeah, you wonder, where does this stuff end up? Who really has charge over it? And, of course, we've also been told that the left hand does not know what the right hand's doing. Everything's very compartmentalized to keep the secrecy in place. Is that how it works? But you, you brought up a perfect point. I'll get back to the secrecy thing and not knowing what the other guy's doing. I love the Indiana Jones um, comparison because it is exactly, exactly what I thought when I read that nine-page report. Do you remember the very last scene, the two government guys, the one kind of overweight guy with the mustache and the thin accomplice of his, and Indiana Jones goes, well, what's going to happen to this? And he goes, well, we've got our top people working on it. And Indiana Jones says, who do you have working on it? And the guy's response was, top. Well, <laughs> when I read that nine-page report, it's exactly, go read it again. It, they didn't use the same word, but it is exactly what they're saying. We're, we're going to put our top people on it. And you know what? That's exactly what they told everybody in 1947. We are going to put yeah. our top people on it. And I thought, if this is Indiana Jones all <laughs> over again, <laughs> yeah. you nailed it. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's it. what it feels like. Yeah, it really does. So, you know, I don't know. It, the frustration level is high. And then there's a place where the audience and the researchers and the people that have been knowledgeable about this for so long finally just say you know the government's full of it and they're always going to lie to us what a shame that people have to feel that way but it's the truth and, well, and i find I it discouraging but it's how it is i have somebody who is retired from the government who has told the truth and and let me take a moment to share that with you Colonel Gary K. Carroll left service after 30 years. He flew 
over 5,000 hours in America's fastest planes. 4,200 plus hours were in fighter interceptors. In 1966, Colonel Gary K. Carroll and his wingman were stationed at Selfridge Air Force Base in southeastern Michigan. And his wingman's name was Robert Nicholson. Robert Nicholson, we'll, I'll get into their, their military history later, just to show you how exquisite it was. But it was March of 1966, and UFOs were buzzing southeastern Michigan. It became, it was witnessed by so many credible people, so many sheriffs and police officers and civil defense people and college students and college administrators that they were ringing the phones off the hook of future President Gerald Ford and a local representative from that area, Weston Vivians. It, it got so bad and there was so much evidence that those two spawned a congressional hearing on the 5th of April, 1966, only a couple of weeks after Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was Project Blue Book spokesman, held this huge press conference at the Detroit Press Club on the 25th of March, 1966. That was 55 years ago. And at that press conference that was attended by folks, over 60 reporters, television crews from all over the country, the government spokesman told the world it was marsh gas. It was the exclusive result of the spontaneous ignition of swamp gas. So how ridiculous. <laughs> how ridiculous. It, does you, is your intelligence insulted? Yes. Because that would, yes, it would insult my intelligence. Yeah, exactly. Well, 55 years later, actually 54 years later, um, through a considerable years of legwork, I locate Colonel Carroll, and I start chatting him up. And he needs a day to think about it because I know he has something to tell me. And he knows he has something to tell me, but he needs a day. So I contact him the next day after I had tracked him down and said, um, I'm ready for your story. And he proceeds to tell me that during this March 1966 flap in southeastern Michigan, now, to give you some perspective, there's a city called Mount Clemens. And between the border of Mount Clemens and Lake St. Clair is Southridge Air Force Base. It abuts the lake. And across the lake is our good friend Canada. Now, this um, Air Command, their job was they thought the Russians were going to bomb the United States by coming over the North Pole and Canada and then come down into the states from the north. And so the air defense at, at Selfridge was our first line of defense against those bombers. We had long-range radars, and we would have caught those bombers way up in the northern part of Canada, and hopefully if the squirmish happened there and bombs went off, that, that nobody but the pilots would be engaged. And, you know, hopefully you know, there's only, you know, 
scattered moose and wildlife. So their job, Bob, Bob Nicholson's job and Colonel Carroll's job, was the first line of defense in these F-106 fighters. So they're on what's called five-minute alert. There's five-minute alert, 10-minute, 15, half-hour, kind of a whole string. Five-minute alert says when that klaxon goes off, and this is, this is an alarm, and you've heard it in movies and, and, and shows and whatever. It, it's a brand name. When this klaxon goes off, it wakes the dead. Wow. In, in, March of, in March of 1966, they're on five-minute alert, and it goes off. And within five minutes, they're in the air. And they're being vectored Gosh. to find what they don't know yet. They don't know if the Russian bombers are coming in. They don't know what's happened. They're, they're just get, get up in the air within five minutes. It's at this point that um, the control center comes on, which is in Battle Creek, Michigan, and they have a huge ground-based radar, and they're the people who are going to tell those two Mach 2 jets where they're going and what they're looking for. <clears throat> Gary and Bob eventually find out that there have been ground reports, multiple ground reports from highly reliable first responder sources that the UFOs are buzzing southeastern Michigan, and that's what they're looking at. So over the course of – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just said that's quite an adventure for those pilots. So they spent the next 90 minutes intercepting this UFO multiple times, getting it on radar, having it recorded so they know that it was a solid object. Both Gary and Bob visually saw it. They both both chased it. They both reported the same in the debriefing. And I had the joy and pleasure of interviewing Colonel Carroll and videotaping that over the course over the course of a year and then working with Colonel Nicholson's family to retrieve a copy of his memoirs that um, he summarized his military career in. And here you have a colonel, Colonel Carroll, who sat on a secret for almost fifty five years. And the obvious question is, why did he decide to tell me? Well, it took a little bit of coaxing. You know, I had to tell him who I was and my work at Wright Pat. So that immediately um, made us kindred spirits because, you know, he worked for the Air Force for 30 years. I worked for them for nearly 40. And once I, you know, showed him my credentials and some other things and let him read um, – my first couple of books, uh, he was kind of at ease with, you know, I think I really finally need to get this off my chest. And um, I know he won't mind me telling you this, but uh, he is now uh, suffering from an advanced stage of cancer. Right. I know. And, That's so and sad. Was, yeah. Yeah. He's 85 years old, and he was aware of this at the time that he started talking to me. So I think... I think he felt, well, you know, by the time this got out, he would be gone. And thank God that didn't happen. Uh, he's, he's hanging tough, uh, but, you know, he's, he's in, you know, not, not the best of health. But, but I think his motivation was 
and we've talked about this, the world needs to know. Even though he didn't get a lot of information, he felt it was important that somebody of of his stature and his, you know, I, I put I put all of his credentials in the book for people to read. Uh, it's impeccable. He's had a, an unbelievable uh, career, and this is real disclosure. And that's my point. You know, people, if you're not happy with what the government's telling you, there are a lot of good books out there. Um, the one by Jim Penniston, uh, the, his uh, the Reynoldson Enigma, and in fact. Jim Penniston, um, he wrote me an endorsement, and that endorsement is on the back cover of the book. So we've got another person. Yeah, now if you think about it, Jim Penniston is a guy who actually touched the UFO, and nobody knows more. Nobody is a better living witness than Jim Penniston. And so he wrote an endorsement, and the foreword is written by Nick Pope, and Nick's got friends, he's got enemies, but Nick's one of the top guys when it comes to, you know, putting out there what he believes is the truth. So here yes. we have now, real, real disclosure. But with Colonel Carroll, so when he had this experience, how did it change him? It must have had quite an impact when he chased this UFO, finally figured out what he was chasing. How did it change him? You are the most intuitive person I've met in the last month. <laughs> I'm going to, and, and, and here's why. Now I know I know that you haven't read the book yet. However, I am going to read to you the first page. It's the page we use to autograph these books. Mm-hmm. Quote. I never believed in UFOs and all that stuff. Then I saw one. After that, everything for me changed. How could it not? Signed, Colonel Gary K. Carroll, U.S. Air Force retired. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> There's the answer yeah. to your question. Yeah, I would imagine it would have quite an impact on any officer who has tracked a UFO in the sky like this. Uh, what a game changer for everybody. And it's nice that he was able to come forward and talk to you about all of that. And again, everybody, the name of the book is Swamp Gas, My Ass. It's by Raymond Shemansky. And it's, I'm, I know it's a great book, and I'm looking forward to reading it. So this experience changed him again i would think it would expand everybody's world it takes away the self-importance that we think were you know the best thing since sliced bread wait a second there are aliens there are extraterrestrials that are very advanced whether they come from our future or the planets who the hell knows but maybe a combination all of the above but for somebody like that who's probably a pretty straight-laced guy you know just grew up in the military, I would imagine something like that would be mind-blowing. His father worked for Rockwell Aviation in Columbus, and I think they might have gone through some name changes. But his father was the lead program manager for an airplane that was a huge game-changer 
in the uh, war, Cold War between, you know, the U.S. and Russia. In fact, Gary loves to tell the story of how once the plane that his father helped develop was revealed to the Russians, they stopped all work on all of their aviation projects in order to build a plane to counter the plane that Gary's father was responsible for building. And so Gary's, in fact, Gary's uncle is a very famous general. Um, There's actually an auditorium in one of the newest buildings on the Air Force Base that was named after his uncle because his uncle was so influential in the creation of two of the largest organizations in the Air Force. So his heritage goes back long and deep. And so I think his fate was determined. Uh, you know, he was, he was an economics major at Ohio State and wound up being this pilot uh, who the readers of the book will d- discover. He has had a number of historical missions, which I cover in the book, uh, above and beyond this intercept of the 1966 Michigan UFO. And these are missions that I could prove through his official military records through the memoirs of his wingman that day and through other military records and uh, newspaper clippings and other research. So um, this individual has had an extraordinary life. And the funny thing is he's such a humble guy. And I can't tell you the number of times he would just like, we'd have a just an off the record conversation about that day in Michigan. And he'd go, the bad thing is I had more questions when it was over than I had answers. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I can only imagine that again, especially given his background I mean, here is a super credible witness who he should never be questioned as to his authenticity. And yet he had this experience that is falls under the level of unexplained, but I would imagine he wanted some explanation from his superiors about this. Did he get any anything from them? Another great question. It turns out that the first person who debriefed him, they go into this room, and they, they, the jets come in, and um, then they grab the um, recording box out of the airplane, and then they jump in some kind of a carry-all, and they're driven back to the hangars, and you know, they got a, a room to debrief, and then these recorders are plugged in, and then they can watch visually, again, what the, the recorders show. And the recorders should show what they were seeing on their screens while they were flying this intercept mission. And then before that happens, they got to put away their, uh, you know, sidearms and whatever else, uh, you know, they carried with them on the plane that needs to be secured. And uh, then they uh, go into this room. Well, depending on time of day and, and, and a duty roster, it just depends. It's a crapshoot sometimes who does the first debriefing. So the first guy does the, the, the debriefing, but Gary said he doesn't really understand the significance of the event because most of those guys, even though this stuff had been going around for several days and it was in all the newspapers and things like that, they're not tuned in to the media. These guys are studying for the, to pass the next course or to do another next qualification 
they're not reading a lot of magazines. It's all tech manuals from the Air Force. So the general knowledge of what's going on with these UFOs right then and there in Michigan is unknown to these guys. And, and that's what Gary told me. He goes, well, we knew from pilots we'd heard before in the you know, previous weeks and months, but not we had no idea what was going on in Michigan at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so as a result, the intercept is not striking a chord with the first person to debrief them. And Gary said, I was stunned and amazed that the base commander never came back to me, that, you know, all the people he expected to come in and just grill him. Based upon his limited experience then and what he learned afterwards happened to pilots, he just said it was an aberration, a complete shock. Then, you know, within the hour, word gets around. Now, the control tower, they have an intelligence officer. And I cover all of this, all the questioning that he gets from this other intelligence officer uh, at Battle Creek. And he gets a more thorough debriefing, which is covered, you know, in, in its entirety. Uh, and I spent a lot of time just digging and digging and digging. Again, when you read it, you'll be surprised that maybe by design, they didn't make a big fuss and within the next couple of days. It just faded away. They went back to duty. You know, they were waiting on the Russians. And this little speck in the sky that they chased and they recorded didn't seem to be a big deal to them at that time. And, and Gary hmm. just said it was surprising. So it's very unlike other stories that you hear where they, you know, drug these guys and tell them, you know, this never happened. Right, right where they get threatened. Yeah, it's just it sounds like they they didn't do any of that with him, which is just nice to know. But again, it's um these are the stories that do pique people's interest who may not be believers yet or understand that this is real yet. But there have been so many stories that have come out, especially recently. But there also have been stories where pilots have gone after UFOs and not returned. And I'm sure you've heard of those. And that's pretty scary. So like some Mantel. of pilots... Mantel was one of the early ones, yeah. Yeah, right. They that's take true. off and they're gone. And, and another pilot that actually was killed chasing a UFO. So there's a variety of stories about this. This one has a happy ending, and that's good. But there are other stories that don't have a happy ending. So what do you make of that? you know, with, with the people that disappear, plane and all. Some of them, they never found plane wreckage. Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. Uh, the guy Mantell who crashed in Kentucky, again, that was part of the cover-up where at the end they said he was chasing Venus and he ran out of oxygen and that. You know, the thing is, obviously it was a cover-up. And you've got to ask yourself the question, what kind of morons and untrained morons are they sending up to chase our enemies in the sky if they can't tell the difference between planet Venus and a UFO? <laughs> right? I mean, these, yeah. these, guys must be, these guys must be rookies with all this misidentification. And, and I think our taxpayers are wasting their money 
sending these guys out that can't tell the difference between Venus. Yeah, you get the point. Um, Definitely. Yeah, that, huh. that's, that's a tragic. But in Gary's story, Gary is one of the few, if only, pilots that have come forward with a story and can prove it. And certainly he is the highest ranking person ever to come forward with this kind of information and being able to corroborate it that I know of in the history of, of UFOs. And that's why I think this is so significant. Uh, and, and at the same time, it exonerates all those people in southeastern Michigan who came forward and who were skewered for telling their stories. You know, they, they are, they're all... They're all now absolved. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think a lot of people were looking for that same absolution with this report to admit, yes, these things are from other universes or whatever. So, yeah, I think that would be the goal for a lot of people who have been in the trenches for so long over UFOs and abductions. Yeah, but there is so much to this, and Wright-Patterson is one of the big pieces of this. But there's so many other bases also, and they all have these tunnels connecting them from what I've heard. So, again, we're back to those vault doors and wondering what's going on under, underneath the earth and behind those doors. I mean, what are they doing? Are they experimenting on aliens? Are they experimenting with the hybrids? Are they taking people that are hybrids and talking to them, maybe in a not-so-nice way. I mean, there's so many possibilities with this. Um, that, that's true, but obviously, you know, that's something that I, I was not privy to. We could speculate all day. You would think that, you know, if they had brought aliens, um, but let's, make, let's make the connection. Because I think that listeners might be interested in this. You know, let, let's let's just take it back to 1947, and let's say that for the sake of the story, they collected aliens, both living and dead, and crash records, and they brought it to Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Now, I am 100,000 percent positive materials came to Wright Patterson because the people who handled it signed legal affidavits claiming that it came to Wright Patterson. I'm a little squishy on the, the body part because none of the military really came forward, military who were in a position to know uh, that those things also came. But let's just say they did. Well, there's a building here at Wright Patterson called Building 219. And in 1947, it was known as the Regional Hospital. That would have been staffed with qualified doctors. There was a surgery room in that building, and there mm -hmm. was a, mor a morgue in that building for the unsuccessful surgeries, I'm sure. Um, if aliens were brought to Wright Pat, living or dead, in 1947, they would have passed through Building 219. One, because it's super close to the main runway there in the operational part of the base, and two, it would be the only building that could accommodate living and dead aliens, living because you had all the medical staff there. So doctors and nurses going into that building <clears throat> to do alien whatever would not be suspicious because 24-7 every day doctors and nurses 
were going into that building. So it's, it's one place where suspicions would not be raised to see the medical staff. Plus they had all the equipment mm-hmm. they needed to do surgeries, um, you know, all the supplies they needed. There is a vault in there that if they needed to store and, and a, a secure morgue, so if they needed to secure dead entities, that certainly would have been the place. Now, the interesting part of this whole story, besides they did have a place through which they could have processed these entities, is the fact that after that building was no longer used as a hospital, the Foreign Technology Division occupied that building for many, many years. Now, who was the Foreign Technology Division? I'm glad you asked. They are the organization. <laughs> they, they, they are the organization that ran Project Blue Book, and they uh, were responsible. Okay. They were so they were responsible for anything foreign technology that, including aliens, that were were collected. Isn't that interesting? There are 600 buildings at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, but according to the official base records. The Foreign Technology Division occupied that building for many years after 1947. Yeah, that is interesting. Now, I want to ask you about another event that took place last year. I don't know if you recall the New Mexico Observatory that was located in a small town. I can't think of the name. But there was something really weird going on there. They evacuated the observatory and the town. And there were black helicopters circling over that observatory and the area. Something was going on there. Now, we know that there are tunnels underneath there in New Mexico, those areas in New Mexico as well. There also was a man from Belgium, a tourist, whose body was found. He was dead, and guess what? That body was never released to the relatives. There was no news about it, about what happened to him, about an autopsy, nothing. It was all zipped up tight. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but it, it, I talk about secrecy. It was enormous I, secrecy I, around all of this. I heard the story. What, was this observatory uh, manned by government or government contractors? You know, I don't recall who was manning it, but I just remember that they got everybody out and they got everybody in the town out and the sheriff of the town was livid because they weren't telling him anything. So whatever or whomever it was in those helicopters or whatever branch of the alphabet agencies was involved, they kept the sheriff out of the loop too. So he was just fit to be tied about all of this. And I had a friend who worked in certain dark operative areas, and I asked him what was going on. He said, I can't even find out what was going on. And he asked his contacts. But this thing was just nobody was going to be talking about it. But yet here was all of this, all of these events. They were, there were witnesses. There no explanation. There are a lot of theories. One of them one of the theories we heard was that one of the aliens underneath 
in one of these tunnels and one of these possibly behind one of those vault doors escaped and encountered this Belgian tourist and accidentally killed him. But that was the reason they wouldn't release the body to the relatives. So again, all of these. Yeah. Go ahead. Another secret. Yeah, another reason. Go ahead. No, it's just, again, more secrecy around all of this. It leads to incredible distrust of what our government is doing. Just one story of many. Well, as you know, I get a very nice retirement after being a senior engineer for 40 years. And yes, you do. I am not. In, <laughs> I am not. I I am not in the. I am not in the. Uh, you know, ever going to criticize my former employers. Um, you know, for everything, <laughs> every job they have to do. But you know, in my books, I do make fun of of their shortcomings. You know, when it is so justly deserved, like you know the blue book thing, and and really a, a lot of swamp gas, my ass, is going through a, a couple of key cases and examining uh, the the facts that I could gather and the truth and then playing it off against, you know, what Blue Book said and Blue Book did. And I do make a lot of fun of that. And I, I use the opinions of, of other much more qualified people than myself, like Dr. James McDonald, who wrote an entire paper about uh, the, the government's failure to advance the science uh, when they had all these opportunities and what McDonald thought about them. And I, I quote him rather widely in there. So in this particular case, I would hope that there was a very good safety reason why people were evacuated. Now, I'm only familiar with the story on the surface. I, you know, I saw a couple blurbs on it. I didn't research it. But you have got me so curious that I'm sure I'm going to spend the rest of the night looking for information <laughs> on it. You, you, you oh, have sent me down another rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really want to know what you find out, but we did a lot of digging around this. And it was very difficult to find anything. But overall, that was the one story that uh, that came out, that this alien that had been taken down into the underground facility in New Mexico did get out. And that's why they were searching the area from the air. And that's why they evacuated that whole area is to protect people from this alien uh, that had escaped. And then, of course, there's the dead body that was never returned to the relatives. So just a lot of, of, things that are concerning and you're right maybe there was maybe this alien was truly dangerous and that's why they evacuated the town for their own safety but we're left wondering wow i'll I'll speculate for you because because i don't often get a chance to speculate i typically just (laughs) stick to the facts as i can establish them so this is a this is a real treat for me I'll, I'll speculate that. I'll, I'll speculate that. I, I think maybe there was a safety issue of some kind, like you know, chemical, biological, radiological, 
high energy or nuclear, that something bad could have happened to people who were within a certain, uh, I'll say, blast range. Uh, because, you know, the alien story, if this is in the desert, especially if it's the high desert, one, they're going to be very easy to find. Two, they're not going to go very far. Um, as somebody who's had a little experience in high desert, um, you know, and the need for water and that sort of thing. So I would think, man, that was such a great cover story. If you had a, a, a CBRNE uh, emergency and you needed a cover story, I'd choose the alien cover story all the time. I, I definitely would. And the dead guy, you know, he may have died as a result of being within the blast range. And so, um, you know, that that issue is being probably settled behind the scenes with his family and the government and all that kind of thing. That's just my my yeah, rational middle-of-the-world explanation. <laughs> Actually, we came up with the escaped alien theory. Um, so, yeah, I, it's interesting. It could, it could be anything, but it, I appreciate what you're speculating on as well. But it kept us occupied for a while because it was so fascinating. And, again, there were just so many different parts to the story. I mean, evacuating a whole town, keeping the sheriff out of the loop to the point where he was livid that they did that. Uh, so he couldn't even know. They wouldn't even tell him people, what was going on. How many people were in this town? I don't recall. I don't think. It, do you recall PK? I don't think it was a very large town. No, it wasn't very large, but I can't remember the number. Yeah. But if you find out anything, Ray, we're we're counting on you here to spill the beans. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Telling the whole story, whether they like it or not. <laughs> right. Curses on you, because now I'm going to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Yeah, we're counting on you. We really are. And again, these these stories that you've had to tell, congratulations for uh, talking to the colonel and being able to get so many hours of tape and, and the really great book out of this to share with people. Again, another credible witness, somebody who is above board, very authentic, who is experienced in the skies, who was out chasing a UFO. I mean, what a great story. Again, the name of the book is Swamp Gas, My Ass. And I just want to mention, didn't you have a different title for Alien Shades of Grays? Wasn't it 50 Alien Shades of Grays? And then you changed it? Well, it was called 50 Shades of Grays. And then I got an email <laughs> one day. I got an email one day uh, from the attorneys representing that um Smutty Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> right? You know that that porno, that porno, yep. that filthy right. porno. Yeah. They didn't want you anywhere near that title. Okay. <laughs> here's, here, here's what they told me. They said we own the trademark for Fifty Shades. Okay, fine. Oh my God! And, wow. And because, because your goods is a book and our goods include a book, we're in the same category. And so get this, we don't want our customers to confuse your book with our book. 
I see. How could you confuse the two? I know. Well, my, it was, it was my very, first, very cute title. My it first really response was, was my first response was my book, unlike your book, does not contain any porn. That's right. That's a very clear distinction. Absolutely. Well, Ray, thank you so much. Thank you so much for for coming on the show tonight. It was a wonderful discussion with you. Congratulations on Yeah, congratulations on both your books. Yes. And we're looking forward to hearing back from you on your next book, whatever it may be on, and also on that New Mexico Observatory Mystery. So thank you so much, and everybody will be back next week with another great show. I think we're going to be talking to a medium next week, so this will be interesting. Maybe we'll ask her what happened in New Mexico. Maybe she can find out. So in the meantime, everybody, we will see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural.